There's an ancient Greek myth in which a musician by the name of Eunomos, famed for his playing of the Sithara, enters a competition. In the midst of his playing, the fifth string on his Sithara snaps. Eunomos continues playing, though, and soon a tiny cicada alights on the neck of his instrument to sing the part of that broken fifth string, filling in the lost notes. Eunomos wins the competition. Meleager, the Syrian Greek poet, wrote of the buzzing creature, O shrill-voiced insect, that with dewdrop sweet, inebriate, dost in the desert woodlands sing, perched in the spray top with indented feet, thy dusky body's echoing harp-like ring. Come, dear cicada, chip to all the grove, the nymphs and pan, a new responsive strain, that I, in the noontide sleep, may steal from love, reclined beneath the dark overspreading plain. Welcome to Bestiary. I'm Eric Botts, here with Meg Sipis. Today, we have two essays about the shrill-voiced insect and its song, that echoing harp-like ring. The first, from Krista Spilson, is called Ravenous. This essay was originally published in 2015 in the online literary magazine, Apt. The summer of 2011 in Columbia, Missouri, they carried with them the same overwhelming plague-like proportions one finds in stories of places and peoples being smote by the divine. In the wooded areas, which are common, there could be more than a million cicadas per acre. These were not what are referred to as dog day cicadas, the type that appear any and every summer. These were the periodic cicadas, brood 19 to be exact, also known as the great southern brood. Their cyclical nature had the air of fables where we see time presented in placeholding chunks to move the plot forward. 40 years, 40 days, 40 nights, etc. For the magic cicada in Missouri, the magic number is 13. Every 13 years, they crawl and claw themselves from the ground so they can shed their nymph exoskeleton to emerge, less butterfly from chrysalis, more one of those things from alien hatching from someone's ribcage, leaving behind a crunchy, hollowed, used-up carcass. I used to find these remnants when I was a child. They were always clinging to trees and I would carefully slide them off the bark and try to attach them to my fingertips like puppets. I couldn't imagine wanting to handle them now, but back then, I didn't think of them as fragile, brittle bodies, or husks of youth, or a sign of imminent insect pestilence. There's a scene in The Terminator when a tank belonging to the evil machine overlords is rolling over piles of human skulls and there is a cracking and crunching noise that never failed to come to mind the summer I walked down the sidewalk and heard the crunch of exoskeletons. Later, it was the dead themselves under my feet. And I couldn't bear to look down to see my own devastation.
That summer, I got to know the song of the cicada by heart, how one combines with one and then another and the next until it's not cacophony, no junked up mash of noise. It's a monolithic rise and fall, a buzzing, driving wave of aural agony that rides the heat of the season right through skin and into bones. Those bones at the hinge of the jaw first, then the ones behind the ear, managing to vibrate some part of my brain that had only ever been troubled inexplicably by that low bass tone in Radiohead's Karma Police. It creates a feeling like an itching that you might try to get at with the back of your tongue against the back of your throat, but it turns into a throbbing natural bass. The males use it to attract their silent female counterparts. These males are collectively referred to as a chorus of cicadas. If one of the loudest of these performers, topping over 120 decibels, were to land on your shoulder and sing his song in your ear, it could cause hearing loss. Needless to say, I wasn't a fan of this natural band that had taken up residence in my yard for the summer. The noise made it impossible to get anything done. Conversations were drowned out or rushed to keep pace. There was a constant buzz going in the background, pulsing as if to say, you are late, you are late, you are late, even if you had nowhere to be. As the summer went on, the spent bodies of the adult cicadas started to drop from the air and onto the asphalt, and there seemed to be, for some, a sweet satisfaction. Then some set out to make it sweeter. Early in the morning on a Wednesday in June, Ashley Nagel, manager of Sparky's Ice Cream Shop, and several of her employees stepped out of their homes and into their yards and began to scoop. Sparky's had a reputation for handcrafting some of the finest, if often unusual, flavors of ice cream that could be had in the area. On my first visit, I got a bourbon and sweet cream-based ice cream with grape nuts, cornflakes, and little pieces of banana throughout, appropriately named The Morning After. Many of the times I went into the shop, there were flavors I couldn't wait to try or one I couldn't imagine wanting. There was a harmony of humor and pride that went into the production. The first comment I heard about the cicada ice cream was that the flavor resembled peanuts. Really, they were just the crunch. The employees of Sparky's had taken the bugs they had scooped from their lawns, brought them to the store in town where they proceeded to de-wing and boil them. A process meant to cleanse, but the image of the roiling water and the violently jumbling dead with their large heads and red eyes floating and sinking made me feel queasy, made me glad that this was not my job. They chopped them up and coated them in brown sugar and chocolate and mixed them into a brown sugar and butter flavored base. They had kept some of the wings to use as garnish on the top. The ice cream never made it to the display case. They sold it too fast to bother. 
I wasn't there. I didn't hear about it until afterward, until after the health department had called them up and suggested they stop selling it. They were told that the health code for the city didn't mention anything specific against the selling of cicadas you had plucked from your yard, but it also didn't address how they should be cooked. So they stopped selling. They were all out by that time anyway. They put up a sign, next batch for sale in 2024. I've since had this image in my head of people holding ice cream cones, slurping and crunching, laughing at their daring, their bold flavor choice, taking part in a celebration of the end of a life cycle, taking gratuitous pleasure in the frozen silence cicada song filling their mouths. That was Krista Spilson with Ravenous. Krista is a graduate of the Master of Fine Arts program in nonfiction writing at George Mason University and teaches at Salisbury University in Maryland. Her writing has been listed as notable in Best American Essays and has appeared or is forthcoming in literary journals such as Boulevard, Crazy Horse, Diagram, The Rumpus, and Portland Review. Socrates claimed that upon the birth of the muses came the first song. And a group of men, when they first heard it, became so elated that they erupted into an endless chorus, forgoing all sleep and sustenance for their music, quote, until at last, unconsciously, they died. And from their corpses emerged the first cicada brood. These and their descendants have all been blessed by the muses, with no need for food or drink or sleep, blessed to sing from birth to death. At their death, the cicadas report to the muses of the poets and lovers, historians and astronomers, jokers and playwrights and dancers, and most of all, the musicians who honor the muses with their beautiful work. Loud and pestilent though it may be, the cicada is to be venerated, protected as a symbol and voice of the arts, a harmless benefactor, an expression of ecstatic love for knowledge and creation. A threat to the cicada is a threat to all art and inspiration. This next essay comes from Robbie Maxted, a former defender of an Indiana cicada brood stationed in the yard of his childhood friend, Peter. Here's Robbie with Specious Speciosus. First though, a quick message. The infestation originated in my friend Peter's front yard the summer before I entered fourth grade. 
Peter was two and a half years younger than me, exactly between me and my brother Will, who was five years my junior. In actuality, Peter was only two years old because he'd been born on leap day. That's aside from the point. Peter lives three houses behind us in a sprawling suburban Indianapolis neighborhood that pressed up against our own. Each summer, Will and I spent nearly all our free time with Peter, either at his place or ours, building Lego space bases, battling at Mario Kart 64, and inventing games outdoors. A yearly rhythm initiated by the first firefly of late May and the final cicada call of early September. Our favorite invented game was ball tag, aptly named because whoever was it threw a ball to make a tag. We'd chase each other for hours in the woods behind Peter's house, darting between saplings, scaling the steep creek bed, ducking behind the decomposing pine log, cutting across the neighbor's grass back to Peter's front yard. During one such game of ball tag, we encountered Insect Zero. Will and I jumped the creek, burst from the woods, and cut around the side of the house with Peter close behind. He whipped a throw as he rounded the corner and missed, the ball landing in one of the flowering shrubs his mother was so particular about us not crushing. Exhausted from an afternoon of running, I called time out for a water break. While hydrating ourselves on the front step, the largest wasp I'd ever seen buzzed into my face, sending me to my feet and down the sidewalk. Apparently, when I ran, the wasp followed for a few feet, but then turned on Peter and Will, who also abandoned their water, and met me on the driveway. What was that? I asked, never having seen anything that looked nearly so wicked. The wasp was the length of a grown man's thumb with a two inch orange red wingspan. Its body appeared like that of a massive yellow jacket, but with a glossy curved black abdomen bearing rust yellow stripes. About two thirds of an inch long, a stinger curled like a sickle beneath the wasp's body. Absolutely hellish. We crept to the corner of the house and eyed the front yard. Nothing in sight. While Peter and Will rescued the water glasses, I tiptoed to the shrub to snatch the ball so we could take our game back to the woods. Just as I parted the bush fronds, the wasp swooped down from the Chinese willow near my shoulder and beelined across the yard toward Will and Peter, who fled once more. I crouched, watching as the demon returned from its pursuit, darting this way and that around the yard pausing for a few seconds here, a few seconds there. Then, it swooped to the ground and disappeared into the freshly mown grass. The wasp was just as big as I'd thought after my initial encounter. Snaking my hand into the foliage, I freed the ball and sprinted around the house without looking back. In the coming days, that first wasp was joined by another, and another. 
After several weeks, there were what seemed like 20 to 30 hovering about Peter's front yard, now speckled by small mounds of dirt piled around index finger diameter holes, an insect equivalent to a crawdad burrow. We hung out at my house, avoiding Peter's yard as best we could. That all changed, however, when Peter called and told us to come over as soon as possible. It's important, he said. Meet me in the backyard. We found Peter on his screened-in porch. My dad looked them up, he said. They're cicada killers. And the best part is, they don't sting humans. Then what's the stinger for? I asked. Only females have stingers, but they're just to inject poison into cicadas. He informed us that the monsters burrow 10 to 20 inches underground, moving hundreds of times their body weight in soil with their jaws and legs. Off these main tunnels, gravid females dig small nests and lay one egg per chamber. Before doing so, however, they hunt down a cicada and inject paralytic poison with a single sting beneath the abdomen. Because the cicada is often three times the wasp's weight, the cicada killer lugs the bug back to the nest over a period of hours. One egg is laid on each cicada beneath the leg joint near the stinger's puncture wound. Then, the mother closes the chamber with dirt, entombing the live cicada. The cicada killer larva emerges from the egg a day or so later and crawls through the sting wound to eat the paralyzed cicada from within. Once the cicada has been desiccated, larvae spin a cocoon in which they slowly develop into a mature wasp. According to Peter's research, the aggressive behavior that we'd experienced stems from the male wasp's territorial nature. Each male guards an area that's approximately a yard square, resulting in territorial spats between cicada killers, hence the brusque flitting about. Since males guard the nest from predatory insects that feed on cicada killer larvae, they remain exposed to the baking summer heat. So, periodically throughout the day, males vomit on their own heads to stay cool. To add to this indignity, male cicada killers don't even have a stinger, which only confirmed their harmlessness for Peter. You know what this means, right? Peter said. They stole our yard. So this is war. Minutes later, we were down in Peter's Creek, each of us cutting a long, lithe shrub branch with a pair of his mother's garden clippers. After stripping the leaves and twigs from our sticks, we gathered at the side of the house. And you're sure they don't sting humans? I asked, gazing out at the sailing horde. Well, the females can, Peter said, but only rarely. Like, if you step on one barefoot. You guys ready? Despite this bit of information, I nodded and followed Peter into the yard, holding my stick aloft with two hands like a lightsaber, ready to take back what was ours. We advanced into the midst of the swarm and swung our sticks like crazed men, chopping over and over through the air. Smacking a speedy insect with a thin stick is harder than you'd imagine. After 30 minutes or so of ineffectual efforts, one of Will's swings connected, 
smacking a wasp to the ground. Circling close, we leaned in. The wasp's stinger looked like a miniature syringe, curving sinisterly from the end of the sleek abdomen. Laying still, the creature appeared a frozen, nightmarish alien, something discovered inside a mad scientist's cold locker in a B-movie horror flick. Then, it twitched, clawing at the air and writhing among blades of grass. We looked on, horrified, until it righted itself, wings twitching like it might fly. I aligned the hilt of my fresh-hewn sword and pressed down until I'd ended the wasp with the satisfying crunch of crushing an empty eggshell. One, I said, looking to Peter and Will. Thus began a new game even better than Baltag. It was us versus nature, with only the off chance of being stung. For the rest of that summer, we mustered at Peter's house around 11 or 12 when the cicada killers emerged from the ground as the sun neared its zenith. Since our neighborhood was an older subdivision, the houses were surrounded by tall, mature trees. Oaks, pines, maples, perfect for cicada hatchlings to climb, their haunting call becoming a choir by mid-afternoon, a sound that even today makes me nostalgic for lazy Indiana summers, the heat beating down as we killed time. The three of us would stalk out into the yard, swords in hand where we'd inevitably be buzzed by the wasps. After multiple errant stick swipes, the cicada killers would disappear into a tree or retreat up and over Peter's house. Five minutes later, they'd return, again swooping us when they saw that intruders were still on their turf. This parry and retreat continued for hours, the wasps taking casualties every so often, but never stinging us. Our reflexes honed and it truly did become a war, us swatting cicada killers from the sky and them reproducing as rapidly as possible. Once, we even killed a female hefting a paralyzed cicada through the air, the girth of the cicada's stunned body providing a broader target for our sticks. By the end of summer, we'd killed nearly 40 wasps apiece. While the game offered untold hours of entertainment, it also served a dual purpose of reclaiming Peter's yard from the invasive throng. One afternoon, Peter's dad even thanked me for killing them so he didn't have to pay for an exterminator. Beyond rebutting the invasion of Peter's yard, I justified my kills as a defense of the cicadas the oversized, bulbous-eyed creatures who shed their exoskeletons up and down the tree trunks in our yard. Cicadas seemed innocent bumblers compared to the wasp's wicked fighter jet aerodynamism. Yet cicadas too looked otherworldly, albeit in a guiltless, prehistoric sort of way. Cicadas aren't predatory. Their larvae suckle upon the roots of trees, which hardly compares to the slurping from within of another living creature. Rather than aggressively swooping at humans, cicadas perch high in trees where they coordinate their chirps into a reedy chorus that dominates the Midwestern soundscape, a noise I associated even then with lying under a sheet on hot summer nights, our windows open to let the breeze blow through, staring out my bedroom window at the maple tree's swaying branches, lightly illuminated by the neighbor's floodlight, a noise that characterized my childhood summers. Perhaps then our war wasn't so much against cicada killers, but a fight for cicadas, 
for their cacophonic prattle that I'd known every summer since birth, a battle against time, against growing up, for things to say the same, for ceaseless summer. With the cooling temperatures of September, the cicada killer population in Peter's yard dwindled, either from our efforts or from the frost. We continued fighting the stragglers through the start of school and into October when we killed the final wasp late one afternoon. At long last, we were victorious and we'd expunged specious speciosis from our playground. The war was over, as well as our game. That is, until the next summer, when we realized that we'd overlooked the gestational period of cicada killer eggs. When mid-June rolled around again, they were back and just as populous as before. We resumed our struggle, and again October brought a reprieve. For the next several years, we anticipated the return of the wasps, when once again we'd spend afternoons swatting the terror-inducing monstrosities. Eventually, though, we grew too old for swinging sticks at insect infestations and moved on, though I still remember seeing the wasps flitting about Peter's yard when occasionally I'd ride past on my bike. Together, we killed hundreds of wasps over the course of those summers, but even our best efforts did nothing to eradicate that wasp kingdom. No matter how many we knocked from the air, replacements crawled from the crust of the earth to take their place. Who are we to think that we could beat out a species determined to hang on to a grassy corner of the earth? To eradicate a species bent on silencing the cicadean symphonies of our childhood? To stop time from advancing, the season from changing? To avoid growing up? Every summer, nature proved victorious, and time rolled on. Even today, now that we three are grown and each live in different states, I imagine that every June, the resilient descendants of descendants of descendants of that original wasp burrow out of their wintering chambers and haunt the yard of Peter's parents evidence that the war rages on, and that even still, we're losing.
Robbie Maxstad, the writer of the essay you just heard, is a senior features editor for The Rumpus and an assistant professor of writing at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. He is writing a biography of Place about Jerusalem's City of David archaeological site. He has been published or has forthcoming work in Boulevard, The Normal School, SA Daily, Big Leaf, and Bad Pony, among others. Follow him on social media at Robbie Maxstad. That's M-A-A-K-E-S-T-A-D. Bestiary is produced by me, Eric Botts, and her, Meg Sipas. I worked on the editing and sound design for this episode, and I'm responsible for our theme music. You also heard music in this episode by Santosh, Thomas Helton and Kevin Patton, Salome Lego Playset, Apache Tomcat, Quantum Jazz, Misha Dioxin, Kevin McLeod, The Unnameable, and Damiano Baldoni. The song you're currently listening to comes from Lorenzo's music. You also heard Cicada Calls and Choruses recorded by Mike Koenig and Dan Mosguy. You can find more Cicada sounds, if you're into that kind of thing, on the website cicadamania.com. Subscribe to Beastary on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Beastary Pod. Our website is beastarypod.org. As always, thanks for listening. Stay